The following is presented by Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts. Hit it! Hang on, you're now part of the fastest podcast on the planet, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Produced in the studios of Jacobs Media, located in beautiful downtown Gainesville, Georgia. On today's show, 2023 Performance Cars of the Year, Tim's 2023 Car of the Year, and Where Not to Park Your Wiener. Plus, special guest, 40-year automotive and motorcycle veteran broadcaster Dave Despain. All that and a whole bunch more informative automotive buffoonery, right now with Bud and Tim. Let's kick it into overdrive. Welcome in, folks. This is Bud Hughes, resident car nut, and Tim DePasquale, a poster to the stars, and Kubota. What do you call that thing? The hook on your tractor. Oh, the grapple. The grapple, and oh. a Kubota, Kubota grappler expert <laughs> working on the property. I'm getting plenty of experience. How's it been going? There's no more fun that you can have than uh, tractoring with a grapple, or grappling with a tractor. Grappling <laughs> with a tractor. It's fun. Can you get close to the highway and snatch cars? Oh, <laughs> it's not that big. Maybe a Barbie car. We'll get you a bigger one. <laughs> Motor Trends Performance Car of the Year for 2023. We know we talked about it was the C8Z06 Corvette. But I wanted to let people know what the other finalists were. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was very interesting, I thought, that they run the whole gamut of from the least expensive to the most expensive and something for everybody in between. Well, with your permission... Yes. In, in the discussion here, I'd like to take out the Corvette Z06, because mm-hmm. we already know it won. Yeah. And it's a $166,000 car. Now, I'm going to take out the Lambo, which the uh, Lamborghini was uh, 333000 mm-hmm. and the McLaren was 491000 Okay, that's a little bit out of our zip code, even if you combine those and come up with a median price. Right. And they're not cars for everybody. No, they're not. So they're... let's go to the cars for everybody, and some of the finalists that were in it are the Audi rs3 that was one of the cars in it and i want to mention the price okay so the audi rs3 if i can find it here on my sheet i have so many things in front of me seventy-five thousand dollars. yeah okay i mean that's in there it's in there but they said that it, it could have been a better car for 75 grand they, mm. they thought it was a little overpriced uh but well it's an audi it's so. an audi <laughs> well yeah i know but it, they said that it was overpriced based mm. on uh interior and stuff like that they didn't have a lot of uh heartburn with the handling it was more you know how the car was put together uh the honda civic type r awesome i think that's car. a good looking car mm-hmm. 45 grand the hyundai elantra n the, these the hyundais were not even hyundai, on I'm my sorry. they were not even on my radar yeah but it's 35 grand yeah it's it's right in there now the kv the kia ev6 gt that's been on my radar. I've seen that car. That's a good-looking car. Mm, oh, yeah, it is. 63 grand. Mm-hmm. Cayman GTRS uh, Porsche. Yeah, that's 195. Maybe we need to take that off the list. Well, Just I, for our discussion here. You know, I, I, but we work on these Caymans, and that's one of my favorite Porsches of all time. Okay. They're great little cars. Well. And, you know, the thing about Porsche is they have come to be very reliable and long-lasting. Yes. Oh, well, that I will stands give you that. for a I'll lot. Give you that. And you're, you're you're very kind to say that about a Volkswagen. <laughs> well, you know, it's the truth a variation is the truth. Of it. Okay. <laughs> and the Toyota GR Corolla. Mm-hmm. Um, that was also on the list for the 
best car, and it did not necessarily performance car, just best car. Well, it just goes to show that Toyota knows how to build a performance car, although most of what they build and sell are practical, long-lasting, dependable vehicles. They so can stretch. What we're going to do is we're going to name Tim's car of the year, be a performance or regular car of the year, when we get into segment four. Okay. All right, so stand by for that. Are you happy to tell us what your car of the year is? Your choice? My choice. We went through the cars, you know, last year, week well, and this you know, week, and you tell us. Your I'm choice. a blue collar guy. Yeah. I, I, you know, cars, the exotic cars that I could never afford don't interest me. That's just the way I am. When I see the price, I'm done. Yeah, I understand. So, I understand. And they're not for everyone. No. So. But that new Corolla GR really fires my rockets because it is in my price range. It is a Toyota with Toyota dependability, three-cylinder, turbocharged, 300 horsepower, all-wheel drive. I mean, holy cow, bud, does it get any better than that six-speed manual? A car that you could actually live with and drive under 40000 bucks, which is still a lot of money because we're old guys and we remember when we could buy cars, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit quirky looking. Mm-hmm. That's just oh, me. Oh, yeah, it is. It you is. Know, uh, I but kinda, what isn't? You know, I've said this before. Well, you there's had a not, Mini. That's a little quirky looking, yeah, I guess. That was, you could call it in a different way. There's <laughs> not a whole lot of good looking, really good looking cars out there anymore, but a lot of this stuff is ugly. You know, the, the new electric vehicles that are coming out are probably the better looking vehicles I've seen in a long time. But that's a whole nother story. Well, it's, it's a, it, this is another one of those cars that is color dependent. Oh, yeah. You know, I've seen some that are, are silver or white. And uh, yeah, they, they well, look, they and look I, fine. Well, and I, I, I do know. have to admit me. that to- Toyota, the brand itself, is not big on, I don't know who designs, who comes up with their colors, but... Uh, the the color makes a difference in how they look. Well, maybe so. I I like the Honda Civic R. I do like the Honda Civic R. And they got R the dependability, also. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just does. wish it was a two door. They are pretty much neck and neck. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's. But your... actually, the Honda Civic Si is, in my opinion, a better day to day driver because it's a it's toned down a little bit, but still has the it still drives good, but maybe not as quirky as the R. Okay. I'm, a, I'm just a two-door guy. I, I just am. Oh, yeah, okay. We had an RX-8, you know, mm. and it looked like it had two doors. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, good. I, I'm good with that. But I, anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why they make all different kinds, bud. So that's that why I got... Even you know, freaks like us can find something we like. That's why, you know, you've got 14 cars and I've got... Four yeah, or right. something like that. Four, I and, like a, four and a half, I guess. I would like something different every day of the week, actually. Just <laughs> <laughs> to live by. Be careful. Dateline Las Vegas. Did you see this story, oh, Tim? Is that crazy? The Oscar Mayer Wienermobile had its catalytic converter, converter stolen while parked at a hotel. I mean, that's bold. You know, <laughs> that's, that is one bold thief. Well, apparently, when the drivers, uh, after driver Corndog Clara and co-pilot Shatter Cheese got in the vehicle the next morning, uh, they had to have it towed to a Penske truck rental uh, facility, and the mechanics found a replacement part. Well, But, the, you know, the, the guy that ran the truck shop said, really, we've got this, the Wienermobile parked in here with all these semis and stuff, and... 
Right. Anyway, they found it. The catalytic converter, of course, which we know, uh, filters pollutants from the vehicle's uh, emission system, and it's sought by thieves for the valuable metals it contains. One of life's little lessons, yeah. especially when you're at a hotel. Be careful where you park your wiener. <laughs> oh, oh Bill. God. Man, man. Well, reports of such thefts in Las Vegas soared 72% last year. Well, that's going on converters. everywhere. Technically, they stole it from the bun. <laughs> but, you know. Oh. Uh, okay. The wiener sits way up high on the, on the vehicle itself. Well, right. But, yeah. You have to get pretty up pretty early to catch up to... Uh-huh. Well, I was line of thinking. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I just hope to relish this conversation. Yeah, I'm just hoping that the That's catalytic converter kinda... they put on there passed muster and it keeps them going. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Well, Tim, we've been talking about the transportation industry as it relates to technical training at Lanier Technical College for the past few podcasts and shows that we've done. Oh yeah. One of the uh, programs there is the Motorsports Vehicle Technology Program, and what. What's unique about that program? It's only available at the main campus. I, I want to remind folks Lanier Technical College has five campuses. But whether your passion is racing or custom car or the aftermarket, mm-hmm. I know you've, you've got guys who have come from schools like this. Right. The Motorsports uh, Vehicle Technology Program is a great way to get some of the skills to launch your career. Obviously, like all of these careers, when you get into them, you get further training, right. and, and away you go with them. Mm-hmm. But the neat thing about the motorsports career is it, it centers on IMSA racing, SCCA, NASA, NASCAR, ARCA, and NHRA. Drifting and, and custom shops and everything else. Right. You're, you're learning. They have a diploma program. Mm-hmm. They have a degree program. And they have certificate programs. One is, is in composites and one is in fabrication, which are both skills that teams need right. um, you know, at the track. Mm-hmm. So what you do is, is you, you go through a lot of different things in the program. From point A to point B on race cars, you cannot learn everything you need to learn about a race car, one specific race car, because they have Indy cars in the shop. They got NASCAR type cars in the shop. They got uh, circle track cars, road race cars and everything in between Mm -hmm. engines, transmissions, transaxles, uh, dyno, all the things you need to get your feet wet in different things and find out what makes it tick for you. Sure. It's an introduction into the world of auto racing. Absolutely, and, it, and and it's inside. It's not what you see on TV. It's what goes on behind the scenes. Right. The director is a former motorsports engineer, mm-hmm. and he's he's great. He just he just knows the industry inside and out. That's John Leverett. He's going to be on one of our podcasts uh, in the future, and he can give you a lot more depth as far as information of the program. But check it out, the Motorsports Vehicle Technology Program. Check it out at Lanier Technical College. LanierTech.edu. Okay. All right. Today's guest, motorcycle racing expert, former AMA Hall of Famer, writer, producer, and host of many motorsports shows, easily one of the most recognizable voices in motorsports broadcasting, an all-around good guy, Dave Despain. Welcome into Bud's Garage Overdrive. Hey, Dave. Wow. What an introduction! <laughs> that's going to be hard. That's going to be hard to live up to. I was thinking, old retired guy that very few people still remember. <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. But you know, I was going to ask you, how is your, uh, how's your retirement going? Mine's not going so great, but how's yours doing? <laughs> Mine's perfect. Uh, I, I I spent my whole working life hearing people say, "Gee, I could never retire." You know, I'd go crazy sitting around with nothing to do. And all the time I'm thinking, you know, 
I've got maybe the best job in the world, but when the day comes, I'll be perfectly happy to just stop working and, you know, do whatever I want. Get up in the morning and not have to do anything. And as it's turned out, that's exactly the way it is, and I love it. <laughs> well, that, that leads me into another question. Us people that, you know, go are, are up against a chip all the time, it seems. Um, do you have any hobbies or, or, you know, work was work and it kept you going. And, you know, I, I know that Tim knows that from his business. And wow. Well, the, the, the motorcycles kept me pretty occupied up until a couple of years ago when I made a couple of mistakes that um, I guess opened my eyes to the fact that as much as I uh, dreamed of riding until I was 100 years old, the, the reality was reaction time and motor skills and all those other things that you need to ride motorcycles without getting hurt, um, just they just aren't there. And um, it was time to quit. And I thought that'd be pretty traumatic. It turns out it's not been as bad as I expected. I still stay, you know, pretty immersed in the in the motorcycle racing scene in terms of you know surfing the net to see who won what all that kind of thing. But um, now I, I, you know, I'm one of those people who can't really tell you where the day went. I sure I sure seem to have kept busy. Um, and that's that's the way retired life in general has been. I, I just it seems like I'm busy all the time, but I be hard pressed to tell you what I accomplished yesterday, <laughs> and that's fine. That's perfect. That's, well, that's just the way right I thought it would be. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I go I go out in the garage. My wife's in inside cooking, and she loves doing that. And I'm out in the garage tinkering, and everything that I think is going to take me an hour to do takes me five hours to do. So mm. it, it kind of times out. Yeah, that's I, I, I attribute some of that to the aging process, but the sense of time definitely, uh, you know, my my expectations about how long or how difficult something might be tend to be way underestimated. <laughs> yeah, We're, we can relate. All right, so let's go back in time here. How did it all start for you? You know, how did you get from from growing up in Iowa? And and get involved with motorcycles and all of that, and, and let's let's go down the path with you. Wow, it's a uh, it, it, it's a convoluted route for sure, uh, all totally accidental. Um, to to try to abridge it, I guess down to a reasonable time. I uh, came from a family that had nothing to do with motorsports, didn't know anything about racing, didn't care anything about racing. My earliest racing memory probably is when I was 11 or 12 the family would go camping on Memorial Day weekend in our old yellow 50 something Ford station wagon and everybody else was off at the lake swimming and I'm sitting there in the car trying to tune the car radio to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network sure. Sid Collins yeah. and the broadcast of the Indy 500 and I have no idea why? I don't know where that. I don't know how I even knew the Indy 500 existed, um, but somehow it had made a connection to my consciousness. And in retrospect, maybe the radio aspect of it was interesting to me, although I didn't realize it at the time. So that's my first real memory of, of any kind of racing thing. 
And then if you fast forward to when I turned 18, my, I told my parents I wanted a motorcycle. My dad said, if you bring home a motorcycle, don't bother bringing it home because uh, you're going to have to go find another place to live. Uh, and they were as good as their word. They went on vacation uh, when I turned 18, could sign the paperwork myself, bought a motorcycle. They came home, there it sat. And Dad was true to his word. He booted me out of the house. And I'm pretty sure they thought that was going to be a couple of day thing. Lasted a little longer than that. So the motorcycle fascination for me lasted my whole life. But, you know, I, I lived in the back of my 53 Mercury and, uh, you know, had motorcycles. That was my whole life revolved around motorcycles. And my employment at the time was the little local radio station, 250 watt daytime. KMCD, Fairfield, Iowa. Uh, so I guess maybe to skip, the, the, the radio, even at that level, which is very local, very small time, uh, we did all the high school football, basketball, etc. So even though I wasn't hugely involved in all that and my passion had already turned to motorized stuff, I learned how to do play-by-play. I learned how to, you know, announce if you will. Um, so fast forward, uh, I've got the motorcycle thing going, working at the radio station. Local motorcycle guys all decide to organize a club and build a racetrack. And it was a nice racetrack. I mean, for that period, this would have been, what, 60s, I guess. Um, and so I learned a little bit about promoting and a little bit about the hassles involved in running races never intended to race myself decided one day to go out and fiddle around while they were we had a practice day and <laughs> thought god this is the most fun i've ever had so i tried my hand at racing wasn't very good at it but enjoyed it um fast forward again i get old enough to realize that i'm not going to make any money as a racer and i need a job so I go to the, go to the sanctioning body, the American Motorcyclist Association, and long story short, convince them they need to hire me, and they did uh, in their racing department, writing press releases, and then on weekends I would f- go out and announce the national races, which was a a huge thrill for me because the year before I was going to those races and buying a ticket and sitting up in the nosebleed seats. So. Um, to get paid to do that, I started putting two and two together and trying to figure out how to make a career out of it. But I had just gone to work for the AMA and, you know, was loved my job. Um, my boss at the time, and this is really a, a key moment, um, my boss at the time when I hired in was a former KK, K&K insurance salesman. And if K and K sounds familiar, yep. that's because they were the, the key, that was the colors on the Bobby Isaac Dodge. K and K sold racetrack insurance, and that's what my boss did. So he knew the racing business, but mostly he knew all the people in the racing business, and he knew they were all going to be in Daytona in February. And so he decided that he needed to take his new PR guy down to Daytona in February and introduce him to the players and get ready for the motorcycle race down there a month later in March. Well, in reality, he just wanted to go hang out with his buddies, and I was a good excuse. But 
there I am in Daytona for the stock car race, never having seen a stock car race, and thinking, well, this is, you know, this is pretty big stuff. This is pretty cool. Uh, somehow MRN got wind of the fact that I had been in the radio business and came to me and said, what are you doing Sunday during the 500? And I said, I assume I'll be here watching. I mean, my job basically is to hang out and try to learn. What would you think of the idea of going to St. Petersburg to the AMA motocross on Sunday afternoon and do some reports on the phone, and we'll put them on the air live during the 500 to promote our broadcast of the 200, the motorcycle race, coming up in a month. Sure, I can do that. So instead of going to the 5, I saw the Saturday race, which was then, I think, called the Bush race. Um, Sunday, I didn't see the 500. I was in St. Petersburg, where it was pouring down rain, and did the motor, watched the motocross race. Had it's it's hard to imagine how things have changed, but in those days, if you wanted to do a radio report, you literally had to go find a phone booth, unscrew, yeah. unscrew <laughs> the mouthpiece, alligator clip your little uh, recorder connector to the to the phone jack, mm-hmm. dial the number, and hope that you know miracles happen. And sure enough, they did. And so I'm getting phone calls. From my friends, before cell phones, I had lots of messages when I got home saying, Oh, we heard you on the Daytona 500 broadcast. That was really cool. MRN thought it was great, so they said, How'd you like to do some turn announcing? Uh, sure, okay. Pays better than uh, PA announcing. That's where I met Ken Squire. He was then the anchor of Motor Racing Network. And that wow. was, that, there was a whole new path there. But it all came about just you know, because my boss wanted to go to Daytona and hang out with his buddies. So, chapter two, uh, squire. Let me think how this was. Okay, it was. It was. I, I, I got to make sure I get the sequence right here. Same boss in 1975. Uh, we're at, we're in Daytona for the 200 now. Motorcycle or stock cars are you know not close to my consciousness for that period of time. Right, yeah. And um, ABC Wide World of Sports showed up at the last minute and got the rights to the 200 and didn't have a motorcycle analyst on the payroll because they didn't do any motorcycle racing. And so my boss, the aforementioned K&K salesman, I hope this is okay on a podcast, said to, to the... Uh, to the uh, producer of the ABC broadcast, ultimate, you know, bullshit. This is uh, this is Dave, and he's our PR guy, and he knows everything about the sport and the racers <laughs> and the the 200 itself and the history and and all of that. And uh, he'd make an he'd make an excellent analyst. He has all kinds of electronic media experience. Oh. My electronic media experience was calling high school basketball on a 250-watt daytime radio station in Iowa, but he left out most of those details. The producer didn't care. He just needed somebody to stand alongside Keith Jackson. So he pointed at this cameraman. He said, here's the thing. 
you go with that cameraman, go down and stand on pit road, and in 45 seconds, tell somebody who doesn't know anything about motorcycle racing why they should watch this race. I, well, I could do that. So it's been a long time, but it, it, went, it went something like, Hello, everyone. Welcome to the famed Daytona International Speedway, where this afternoon an uh, international field of jockey-sized athletes are prepared to race the oldest and richest motorcycle competition in America. They'll hurtle around these famed high banks faster than Richard Petty, inches from the concrete wall, protected only by their space-age helmets and a thin layer of cowhide. You do not want to miss this race. And it was 43 and a half seconds. And the producer listened to that. Well, you're hired. And so here I, I am with my sports. Are you kidding? Oh, man. First, very first television show, ABC Wide World of Sports. Most important sports show in the world oh, at yeah. the time. Oh, so so there, was, there was a combination of bullshit and dumb luck for which I am eternally <laughs> grateful. And that brings me back around to Squire. Next MRN race that I work, Ken comes up and says, hey, I saw that Wide World of Sports thing you did. That was really good. Um, you're, uh, um, I, I'm at that time, I, Ken Squire at that time, am getting more heavily involved all the time with CBS Sports, and we're going to do some motorcycle races for them next year. Would you like to be the analyst? Sure. Uh, you know, no thought whatever of making a career of it. It was just, you know, it was extra money on a weekend and a fun thing to do. Kind of cool to be on TV. So we did, I don't remember, we did a road race at Laguna Seca. I think we did a Supercross. We did Daytona. We did uh, World Speedway Championship from the Long Beach Arena. Uh, we did six shows, I think. And it was all great. So now we're up to 1979 or something like that. Were, were you still uh, well, racing? 79, 79 would have been the first live Daytona 500. So this would, this would have been maybe just after that. Anyway, okay. um, by now I've been at the AMA for 10 years, and I'm, you know, it's not as much fun as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And Squire was fully entrenched with CBS and made that 79 thing happen, not just from the standpoint of being the lead announcer, but the negotiations. He was very close to the France family. He was then well-connected at CBS Sports, and he put that deal together uh, for that race to go live. And it made a huge impact on NASCAR and stock car racing, obviously, racing in general, television racing in general. Um, And... He came to me after that and said, look, I have a partner and we have this idea for a racing highlight show that we want to call Motor Week, and it'll be, uh, it'll air on Monday, and it'll have highlights of all the weekend races. And I intended to be the host, but now... My CBS contract says I can't do that, but my partner and I realize now is the time to do that, and so we're thinking we should just hire somebody to be the host, and we're thinking you could do that. Would you like to do that? Sure. So I load my motorcycle belongings, which is about everything I had, into the back of an old telephone company utility truck, which was my race truck, 
and drove to Atlanta for the audition, which we did on uh, the pilot was called. Uh, we did a pilot on Easter weekend, and <laughs> this was at Turner Broadcasting, WTBS Superstation, WTBS. Right. Yeah which you may remember did a lot of professional wrestling. And the way their professional wrestling deal worked was the very same studio in which ultimately Motor Week would be produced was turned into a wrestling arena. They put in a ring and they put in, I don't know, 50 or 100 seats so it looked like there were some people there. They let in the, the crowd. Meantime, Back in the area that we were using as our offices for the weekend to prepare the pilot, here are all these guys running around half naked, flexing their muscles and rubbing beano out on themselves or whatever it is to make them look sweaty, and then going out and beating up on each other. And so we're trying to put this TV show together, and there's all this cheering and yelling and booing. It was somewhat surreal. But it flew. They gave us a 13-week deal. So I quit my job at the AMA and never went back. I, I moved to Atlanta, and, and 13 weeks turned into, I don't know, 30-some years, I guess, um, making a living in that business. And that's the short version of the story. <laughs> but, uh, wow. yeah, it, it, you know, there was just so much dumb luck along the way. It was obviously meant to be at some level, or it, it just couldn't have all fallen together the way it did. Now you talk about your van. You had a racing van. Were you were you racing on and off during this whole time that you were you know navigating no, the broadcasting? No, no, no. I had I had quit racing when let me let me see. I guess I, I don't think I ever. I, my last race was just before I started work at the AMA. But I continued to have motorcycles and needed to haul dirt bikes around and stuff. So I had this old clapped-out van that was my race hauler. Um, My racing, this will put it in perspective for you. My career earnings were $35. I got third in a short track at Mendon, Illinois, a fair, a little fair race. It was a county county fair. It was so much fun, so cool. A little eighth mile track. I got third. I got thirty-five dollars. It's the only time I ever made any money. Um, but the last race I rode was at Sedalia, Missouri, on the mile before they converted the miles gone. Now it's a parking lot for the state fair, but. Back then, it was it was a mile, you know, serious mile racetrack. It was on all the on the USAC schedule and and the AMA schedule, and it was a you know it was a big deal. So the 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 first time that the AMA allowed novices, which was the class I raced in, to race on a mile, was that race at Sedalia, and so I rode it. I I, I raced on a mile dirt track on my 250 Boltaco Persang. And we, once I decided to do it, my buddy said, well, I want to go with you. That'll be fun. I said, what do you think we ought to do to prep the bike? And he said, I'd just take it out on the blacktop and tune it to go as fast as it, you know, to go as fast as it'll go because you're never going to let off. 
250 on a mile track, you're going to be wide open the whole way around. And he had a hot rod Camaro, so I'd draft him down the road, and then we'd add a tooth and draft again, and we finally got it to where it would run 87 miles an hour. Wow. And that's how fast we raced. They dropped the flag, and we took off, and it was just, you know, the draft was like a stock car race. You just pull each other around. You couldn't get away, but you couldn't go forward. And we ended up in a pack of about 12 or 13 guys um, banging handlebars the whole way at 87 miles an hour. Oh and uh, it, was, it, was, it was a thrill of a lifetime, for sure. But that was my last race, and then I went to the AMA. So that, that, makes, that, that makes the chronology make sense. Now, you, you, you won a motorcycle race, though. Uh, besides the, was there another one that you won? Uh, well, there was, a, there was a second racing career. Okay. Uh, <laughs> by now, let's see, what year would it have been? Doesn't matter. Um, but by now, I'm fully entrenched with Ken Squire and WTBS and all that. Mm-hmm. We, we've got the rights to Sebring. Sebring stock car races coming up on the following Sunday. I had decided in my infinite wisdom that I would celebrate my 40th birthday by taking up road racing because oh. I'd never done road racing and I when I was you know dirt track and I thought those guys were crazy but then when I got to be 40 and demented I guess <laughs> I decided I could do that and I did uh, and as you point out I won a race which was a disaster because what that did was a move me up a class and mm. b convinced me that I could run with these you know, twenty-year-old kids, and in trying to do so, went off turn nine at Roebling Road. You have to know the racetrack to appreciate it. It's a for the fast guys, hundred and fifteen mile an hour slight uphill, knee on the ground, fast as it'll go. Oh, yeah. uh, so when I went off there with two other guys, it was kind of you know Defcon three. Everybody. Oh, three bikes off at turn nine. This is going to be ugly. None of us got hurt. Um, well, I broke my leg, but it was it was a it was a spiral fracture. It was it was a non-event basically. I was on crutches for six weeks, and then it was fine. But winning that race was you know the the key to my downfall. And Fred Reinstein, whom we haven't talked about, but he was the aforementioned partner of Ken Squire took that opportunity to teach me a lesson because again Sebring was the next week I won the I broke my leg Sebring was the following week so I'm on crutches go to Sebring and Fred says okay uh, we're going to open the show with Despain on the grid in front of the cars and we're going to have him walk around the outside Uh-oh. pole car to, to the pole car and then down to about third or fourth place and in the meantime pit announcer is going to come in behind him and and uh, he's going to introduce the the, the pole sitter interview and i said fred i can't i can't you know i can't do that gracefully because i'm on crutches and he says well then maybe you should give us some serious consideration about your future racing plans because that's what we're going to do. So he made me do it on crutches just to prove a point. And he made his point. I realized that it was pretty dumb for me to try to be racing. I'd, I'd pretty well made up my mind anyway when the doctor showed me the x-ray. But, uh, yeah, that was my second racing career, and I did win a race. And I've got right here on my 
desk this little six-inch high trophy that says it was a uh, a, a Wira National. Well, good for you. I'm a, I'm a Wira National Championship, Western Eastern Road Racing Association. Nothing wrong with that, that's for sure. The, yeah. uh, <laughs> the, well, in all seriousness, the little bit of racing that I did, and, and at the you know very low level that I did it, helped me to understand and appreciate what makes racers tick. Uh, you know, if you hang around with them, you learn that they don't look at the world the same way most people do. No, and uh, that's, you know, that's a good thing. That's part of what we love about them. But there's also an ugly side of that. I mean, they're not, sometimes they're not very nice people. Um, and, you, you, you know, you learn that, too. So I, I, it, was a, it was a good learning experience. It helped me appreciate a lot of the basics about racing that I would later use in covering racing. As a career, I would think that you know, going back to your high school days, doing play-by-play, and I'm always amazed when I listen to MRN. Uh, you know how they hand off one turn to another turn, and it's it's very yeah. much the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it it is, and and I was dazzled by that because going back to the to the Indy 500 broadcast. Their approach was very different, and I didn't think about this when I was 12 years old in the in the station wagon. But later on, as I, you know, developed more of an understanding of how things worked, I realized that you know they would do this elaborate handoff from each announcer to the next announcer every lap. And so when I did my first race for MRN, I don't remember if it was Jackie or Root or Mike Joy. One or the other of them, I think, was, uh, i tell you what, it was Roger Bear, who used to work for R.J. Reynolds. And then when R.J.R. did their deal with NASCAR, Roger went to work in Daytona. He did a number of different things. But at the time, he was running Motor Racing Network. Doesn't matter. Anyway, he said, here's how we do it, and you will do it this way. Mm-hmm. And they basically have a... a point on the racetrack that everybody agrees on the turn one guy is going to drop it when the leader gets to the d in daytona on the wall outside or whatever it was i don't remember but each turn position had what we called a drop point and you had to drop it you needed to have your bit done when the car got to that point so the next guy could pick it up and it was absolutely seamless very, very fast-paced, very high-impact, way more interesting to listen to. Um, and I learned I learned a lot. Well, I learned a lot in general from that whole MRN experience. And again, that, that was, that uh, Motor Racing Network was the breeding ground for a lot of talent. A route came out of there. Uh, Mike Joy, as I mentioned, there were probably half a dozen Guys who went on, or people who went on to do television that came out of the the MRN training ground, if you will. So, and, and of course, the the highlight moment. You know, I watched the I watched the Daytona 500 and wait for the big wreck at the end, and and think I would so much rather watch two guys slug it out like Daytona 1976. Best best stock car race I've ever seen by far because uh, you've got the two biggest stars in the game, Richard Petty and, and David Pearson, and they've been strategizing this for the whole 
500 miles, and it comes down to the two of them in a last lap shootout. And the drop point for I was at, I was in turn four. The MRN position was actually just a little below the Union 76 ball, so you could see under the ball down the straightaway the short shoot to the trioval. Um, and here they came, and they got to the drop point just as they started to spin, just as the smoke started to <laughs> boil off the tires. They got to the drop point. I dropped it to Squire. Squire called the you know the finish as they came sliding and skidding and crashing down and stopped in the infield. And then David got it going with the starter motor and 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 I couldn't see any of it. I mean, it, it was just oh, completely. Oh. All I could see was a wall of smoke. <laughs> so who called but, the fight? What's that? Who called the fight? You know, as it was going on, did Ken stay with no, that? No, that was no, no. That's two different races. This was seventy six. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of seventy nine. You're think. thinking of seventy nine. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, Squire, Squire, and there's a fight. And and the, one of the great racing quotes of all time was, of course, Donnie. When somebody asked him afterward, Donnie Allison, somebody asked him what happened. He said, well, I don't know what was going on. I went over to tell Cale what I thought of him, and the next thing I know, he starts beating on my fist with his nose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so that was two two different situations, but... um, I'm trying to think. Now, I was not there in 79. Okay. That would have been, I don't know. I can't remember. They all run together. I watched it on TV like most of the rest of America because we were all snowed in. I was in Ohio at the AMA at the time. There right. was three foot of yeah. snow. You couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. And it was a monumental moment for NASCAR. I mean, on, on television with the fight and everything, it was just, it, you know, just changed everything. It did. It did. It, it it put NASCAR very much on the map in terms of uh, of television. And again, Squire deserves way more credit. People think of him in the context of the guy who announced that race, but the real contribution he made was in creating the relationship between NASCAR and CBS that that made that live telecast possible. Uh, it was it was a true pioneer and uh is is a true pioneer i shouldn't speak of him in the past tense. Right, no doubt. um but you know he's uh, the things that he and his partner fred did together were you know they changed the sport and for the better especially for guys like me who were lucky enough to kind of follow along and pick up the crumbs now during during this time i've seen you do several documentaries and one of them that stuck out in my mind was at daytona you know you're doing a documentary of the race the racetrack the the history around it and all that and and a lot of writing goes into that and i remember we had bob varsha on he was he was saying you were such a excellent writer how did you become a wordsmith in the mid, middle of all this it's mm, a good question um Wordsmith might be uh, might be an exaggeration, but again, I guess in thinking about it, I would I come back to Squire. It wasn't probably the first time I met him, but it would have been very early in my MRN involvement. You know, there's a lot of hurry up and wait in that environment. So we'd had our production meeting the morning of whatever race it was, and we're all sitting around in the control tower just waiting to. You know, until it's time to go out there in the hot sun and go to work. And Squire is sitting there with a legal pad, he's writing on this legal pad. And I'd seen him do this before, and I finally kind of 
slid over on the chair next to him. He said, what are you doing? I said, you know, excuse me for asking, but I see you with that notepad a lot. Said, what are you, what are you, are you writing love letters or what are you, what are you doing? And he handed it to me and it was in, in tiny little print. Uh, it was a, and, 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 and grouped in categories like racetrack, car, driver, drafting. Mm-hmm. There were all these words and phrases to describe that particular aspect of the race. And I said, you, this is your vocabulary for doing racing on the radio. He said, that's right, that's right. He said, all those things that you always hear about how in radio the audience can't see, so you have to paint the pictures for them. He said, unless you're way better than I am, that doesn't come instantly. You have to have all these, you know, phrases and things at your at the ready, tip of your tongue, if you will, and that's how he did it. And he took the notebook back from me and smiled, and he said, the lesson in that is always do your homework. And if I learned anything from Squire, it was that. It was always do your homework. But in in direct answer to your question, when I was working in that little radio station, you you had to do everything. I mean, play-by-play was just one of the things. You had to play records, and you had to do the news. And so do the news is the key. I had to write the newscast, and I didn't have anybody to train me to do that. I just, I, you know, I was a pretty good in English in high school and, and uh, w- went to a couple of speech contests, I remember. There's another whole story there about how I got into the announcing business, but maybe we'll get back to that. But um, So I, 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 I had to write, I had to learn how to write to do the news, and it was a perfect place to learn because if you made a mistake, nobody much cared. It was a 250-watt daytime radio station in Fairfield, Iowa. When I went to the AMA, I was writing press releases, later moved into their magazine department and was in charge of the magazine and always wrote for the magazine. So I think think to the extent that natural ability counts, I think there was a lot of that. And then the rest of it was just being put in a situation where I had to do it, had to learn to do it. But Squire certainly focused that in terms of racing and said, you know, you, you writing for print is the same as radio. You, you know, you, they don't get to see it. You've got to, you've got to paint the picture for them. So I learned how to do that. And I've always, I've always thought it was a high compliment. People said, like Bob in that case said, yeah, Despain's a really good writer. Bill Weber, I think, was as good as me. If I don't say that without, if I can say that without sounding uh, egotistical, Bill was a great writer. Uh, but he didn't last long in the racing world. He made a couple of dumb mistakes and disappeared. So, uh, so I guess after that, I was probably the number one. <laughs> well, that's, that's good. But you had to, you know, working in a radio station. If you're working with a teletype machine. Uh, you know, you had to you had to figure things out from phonetics and all that, and try to try to make sense of it. And that's that's tremendous training for what you did uh, later in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, everything I did. People ask me, I had kids all the time come up to say, "How do I get your job?" And my first response was, "Do I look stupid?" And they <laughs> and they look at me kind of funny, like, "What do you mean?" I say, "I got the best job in the world." And you want me to tell yeah, you, you how it. to take it away from me? <laughs> I, that, that doesn't fly. I'm not, not going to. But the real answer was, I, 
bullshit and dumb luck. I mean, it was <laughs> it was the BS on the part of the AMA guy and and being in the right place at the right time. No high school, you know, no college education. Graduated from high school mm-hmm. and and immediately started messing around with motorcycles. Uh, went to college forever uh, to keep my draft deferment, um, but you know, not for the purpose of getting an education. I had I don't know five different majors I think in in the (laughs) six or seven years that I went to Parsons College in Fairville, Iowa. So, but point is, no formal training, no education along that line, just school of hard knocks and being in a a position where I got to do these things or had to do these things to, uh, you know, to get along. So, uh, but, but again, Ken Squire's words, do your homework. You, you know, you, you have to put in the effort up front to be good when the you know when the big moment arrives. I'll tell you the, I'll tell you a great Ken Squire story. This I think was the first. I'm pretty sure this was the first live telecast of a NASCAR race that I had ever done, and I was nervous. And in keeping with the do your homework model, I had spent most. It was Richmond um, spring race cold, miserable, and I had done my homework by writing what I thought was the best 45-second summation of the importance of short track racing to American car manufacturers um, that had ever been written, and we're having, because I'm going to be up at the top of the telecast, so I I had this all written by Tuesday of the week before, and... uh, so we're having the production meeting in the motorhome in the morning, and Fred Reinstein, Ken's partner, said, okay, let's go around. I want everybody to tell us, tell us what you're going to say, basically. So we're, so we're all doing the same. His, let's all do the same show. That was Fred's mantra. Um, and so I don't remember exactly how the sequence worked, but anyway, I, I did... For the for the audience there in the motorhome, my 45 seconds, and Squire looked over and kind of raised his eyebrows and went, "That's really good." I said, "Well, thank you, Ken. I appreciate that." And I thought, I'm, I'm doing my homework, and he laughed. And it got to his turn, and he, he looked at Fred and winked and said, "I'm I don't know. I'm not quite ready yet. I'll I'll you know, but I'll be ready when the time comes." And you know, he's co-owns of the company, so he, nobody's yeah. going to tell him otherwise. So, so we didn't hear what Ken had to say. So again, two-hour wait now until it's time to go out and do our thing. I'm getting more and more nervous, and I'm running through this script over and over in my head, and I've got it down to where it's, you know, it's bulletproof, and I've taken out every extra word, and it, it's, it's, it's perfect. And so Squire opens the show, says hello, and does my 45 seconds almost word for word he oh, just, no. and, and finishes and throws it to me oh, nice guy nice guy <laughs> and, and I don't remember what I, how I dealt with it but I dealt with it I stumbled through my whatever it was 45 seconds and through to the pit reporter and when, when the show was over and we were gathered back at the motorhome and Squire walks up and gives me a little elbow and says did you learn anything today I said oh yeah I, I definitely learned a lot today and so I felt at liberty to steal from Ken Squire for the rest of my career <laughs>
Uh, talking about Turner Broadcasting, you know, they started, or, you know, I don't know, I don't know if they were the first person that did it or not, or the, you know, first company to do it, but they were the startup of, of what we know as cable television now. How did, how did mm-hmm. you get from, from there to what we used to call Speed Vision, which became Speed Channel, which became Speed? How, yeah, how did that whole exactly. Thing another, another long story. Yeah. Um, well, Ken and Fred deserve the credit for selling the concept of a racing show to Ted Turner. Mm-hmm. And to sum up Ted Turner, we, when the deal was done and we had our date, you know, scheduled first show lined up, they threw a party. They, they had the set all built, so they opened up the studio, turned it into a party room, invited a bunch of VIPs and, and motorsports media, and Daryl Waltrip, who was then, I don't know, remember which of his championships it would have been, 83, if you've got a record book. Um, he was the, you know, the honored guest. And it was just your typical, you know, cocktail party schmooze and then give everybody the pitch for Motor Week Illustrated. Well, Motor Week, it, it's another story how it became Motor Week Illustrated. But anyway, it's called Motor Week. And so <laughs> Ted Turner gets up to say his, you know, 45 seconds worth and opens by saying, I really don't like motor racing very much. <laughs> and oh, Waltrip, who was sitting at his left elbow, <laughs> looked like somebody would slapped him in the face. <laughs> he looked up at Turner like, what? What are you saying? And Ted went on to explain that he was kind of an environmentalist and he thought racing was a waste of uh, resources and a polluting and not a good thing, but by God, it made money, and it's what the audience wanted, so therefore, we would be doing it, and then Daryl got up and, you know, did whatever, he he handled it as you could expect Daryl to do, made a joke out of it, and everybody was happy, so anyway, where it was was Ken and Fred recognizing that the opening was there for this kind of a show, and then convincing Turner to buy the show, or whatever the financial deal was, and put it on the air. That got the the ball rolling. Speed Weeks, uh, Speed Week, I guess it was called, on ESPN, followed, you know, by a matter of weeks, as I remember it. I'm, I'm convinced we were first. I've, I've since had people try to tell me that, no, uh, ESPN's show went on the air before ours, but I don't think that's true. I'm pretty sure we were ahead of them by you know, a matter of weeks. Right. That doesn't take anything away from the fact that ESPN were the pioneers, not Turner. Turner got in the game, had rights to races. You know, we did Richmond, we did the Coke 600. There's another great story there about squire but we may not get back to that um they did you know a significant number of races but it was a money deal for them it was just you know they saw an opportunity to cash in for espn it had more to do with the you know the dna of the network and that came about because of terry lingner lingner group productions in indianapolis terry an indianapolis boy uh, very much into the Indy 500 and IndyCar racing, working at ESPN. Bob Jenkins and Larry Newber and and Terry together uh, 
used to go cover USAC races for ESPN back when ESPN didn't have very much in the way of racing. And it was very crude and, and very much on the cheap, but they were there. They were covering racing before anybody else and kind of setting the standard along the way. So after, I don't know, I don't remember how long we did Motor Week for Turner. It was five, six years maybe. And they, uh, ESPN and Turner got into a dispute over rights to Pocono, to the Pocono stock car race. Uh, and when I say they got into a dispute with Turner, they got into a dispute with Ken and Fred, who owned the rights and did the show for Turner. And the result was ESPN came to me and said, look, right now we don't like your bosses very much. We're in a business dispute with Mr. Squire and Mr. Reinstein, but we like you, and we'd like you to come to work for us. And I went to Ken and Fred, and they said, you probably ought to do that. You probably ought to do that, because we're not sure where this is going to end up. And so I did. I went to ESPN. What we haven't touched on is that my whole interest in motorsports television basically revolved around motorcycles. I wanted to figure out how to get more motorcycle racing on television or some motorcycle racing on television. There wasn't any at that time. And um, so I made that my deal with them. I want to be your, if I'm coming to ESPN, I want to be your motorcycle guy. And they promised that and then sort of didn't live up to the promise. And I had a five-year deal. So I ended up hosting the pre-race show on ESPN2, which was brand new, and if you go back to that Newberg Jenkins era and Lingner, they reached a point where they were doing virtually every race, um, every NASCAR race, uh, on, on ESPN, and the fans had gotten used to it and were, you know, we got to you got to have ESPN because that's where the NASCAR races are. And so much as it's denied by the people in Bristol, racing played a huge part in building ESPN into the network powerhouse that it became. And so they said, well, what we obviously need to do is create a new network called ESPN2 and do the same thing again. And they did. They took all their racing programming and moved it over to ESPN2. So if you were a loyal ESPN subscriber, you had to subscribe again to this new entity. And, you know, I made a great business sense, I suppose. Made a lot of race fans really mad at them. Um, And me, I was also mad at them. So they put me on the pre-race show, and it became the number one show on ESPN2 because we were up against, I don't know, Australian women's football or something. <laughs> um, and I did that. I did every NASCAR race pre-race show till the end of my contract. And then I left. And behind the scenes, I'd already done a deal with what was then Speed Vision to do motorcycles. And so I went to Speed Vision, became their motorcycle guy. Ended up doing a lot of other stuff in addition to that, which was fine. I mean, I like all kinds of racing. It's just that motorcycle racing was my first love, and they were into that. Well, then, of course, Fox bought Speed Vision, and we know how that ended up. Uh, Speed Vision turned into Speed, and then Fox 
shut it down and uh, and turned and, and, and created FS1, Fox Sports One, right. and I left to go to Speed Vision. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, I left. I went to Mav TV. I lost the. Tr- I've lo- I've worked for everybody, and so sometimes the order, the sequence gets confused uh, in my mind. I but understand, yeah. yeah, when they shut down the network, that's when I went to Mav TV. So on Mav TV. This was after Wind Tunnel, correct? Yes. Yeah, wind so Tunnel. Wind Tunnel had, I think, an eleven-year run. That was huge. Um, and let me think how that worked. We we started out as a, I think, Tuesday night half-hour talk show. Right. And in a matter of three weeks it was up to a nightly hour and I was in the process of building a house at the time in Athens, Georgia as mm-hmm. opposed to Charlotte, North Carolina <laughs> and so they came to me and said we want to do this thing every night I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute I, you know, that, that, that doesn't work for me I ended up having to get an apartment uh, it, was, it, was, it was difficult, it was challenging but it was just for all the good timing that I've, good luck with timing I've had in my career, that was very bad timing. But it, it, it we went through a lot of iterations uh, in terms of day of the week and and time slot and how long it was, and ended up Sunday night, which is where it belonged all along, um, and an hour, hour and a half, which was about right to you know do justice to the to the weekend so uh, yeah that was and we did it for 11 years it was still the last the last wind tunnel was the week they shut down the network and and converted it to fox sports one wow amazing stuff now mav tv tell us a little bit of how that you know how that came about um you know well when i you know i wasn't convinced that I was ready to retire um, and I really liked doing racer interviews that was always my favorite part of the wind tunnel deal right. and so I called Forrest Lucas the head guy at Lucas Oil and, and said do you think that there's still a place in you know in the in the current racing landscape and 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 again, the, you, you kind of have to appreciate how much things had evolved. I mean, with the Internet, television following the lead of the Internet had become very much the, the short attention span theater. And so my question to Forrest was, do you think that there's still a place for in-depth racer interviews? And if so, I'd like to, I'd like to do a, a racing interview show for your network. And long story short, they said yes. And so we did the Dave Despain show, which was half hour long interviews with, you know, lots and lots and lots of really big name guys. I mean, sure, yeah. people. I, I think it's it's all in a it's all in a box somewhere on the Mav TV shelves. You can find outtakes periodically on the uh, on the internet but I, to me it's one of the great wastes of all time I mean they just not no, not because of me but you know we did the last television interview with Dan Gurney um, we did the Scott Bloomquist interview that'll you know almost make you cry knowing Scott's story and okay. and yeah. knowing knowing that he about took my head off back when he had the the drug bust issue and 
came on came on wind tunnel and somehow had gotten the word that we weren't going to ask him about that. I don't know who told him that, but it wasn't me, and whoever told him that didn't tell me. Uh-oh. So, you know, I asked him about it. I thought he was going to come out of the chair. Scott Bloomquist was a pretty formidable guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I feared for my life. But anyway, you know, ten years later, we do essentially the same interview, but with all that time for introspection on both our parts in between. It was, a, it was a wonderful, wonderful interview. And there were just, you know, superstar after superstar after superstar. When Montoya won the 500 over Dixon, and I don't remember the year, but it would have been five, six years ago, yeah. uh, we did Juan Pablo Montoya. Uh, so he's in the seat next to me, and <clears throat> I asked him about the finish of the 500. He looked at me and he grinned, and we had, we always had a, a stack of books, racing books, on the set just as a prop. And he reached over and he took the top book off the stack and he held it up vertically sideways with the, with the spine facing the camera. And he said, "There are I can't do his accent, but there are a lot of guys in IndyCar racing that you can race this close." He put down the book, and he reached over, and he picked up a page of my script and held it up. And he said, Scott Dixon, you can race this close. He had gone around Dixon on the outside in three, if I remember right. And it was just, you know, it was frightening. It was so close. And, they were, you know, you go around the outside there is challenging anyway. So it was a breathtaking pass, one of the one of the great passes of all time. But I thought his description of it was was excellent. And, and my my point being that all that stuff is is evergreen in the in the terminology of the yep. business. You could play that in an interview tomorrow, and it would be just as interesting as it was back at the, back at the time. And they never they didn't do anything with it. I mean, once once you know I decided to retire, they just. I don't know what they did with that stuff, but uh, it, it's it's a it's a wonderful wonderful historical archive, and I hate that they buried it. Well, there's a couple couple folks I'd like to ask you about throughout your career. First of all, uh, Kenny Roberts interviewed him when he was 17, <laughs> and then 40 years later you interview him. What is that like? Uh, <laughs> with, with Kenny Roberts, it's always. Uh, it, Interesting, and uh, you never know what it's like. It's like the box of chocolates uh, from the Forrest Gump. You never know what you're going to get. Um, the 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 17-year-old Kenny Roberts interview was part of my process of getting the job at the AMA when I had decided that I wasn't going to be a racer and I needed to go get a real job. My naive Southeast Iowa hillbilly consciousness uh i thought i should combine my skills into a radio show about motorcycle racing i'll do a, a what we called it back then a demo reel i'll put together a you know a, a sample of the show and and uh somehow it'll magically get on the radio <laughs> i didn't really know how um but i uh let me I get the chronology straight again. I guess I guess this was before I ever talked to the AMA. I I decided I would I would uh, go to Atlanta to the Lakewood Speedway yeah, right. Mile Dirt Track, mm-hmm. 
which had, I think, probably might have been the last AMA race there. It was always a dust bowl and dangerous, and so this might have been the last time. Well, Kenny Roberts, who went on to be King Kenny Roberts, three-time world champion, was at that time a 17-year-old junior, not even in the top division yet, but everybody knew he was coming. I mean, he had such incredible skills, and, and just, you know, his ability to go fast was beyond belief. But his interviewing skills were not yet fully developed, let's say. So I go down there to do this demo reel, and I go, I go find Kenny Roberts and ask him if I could do this interview, and he looks at me like, you know, Kenny Roberts could look at you. Long story short, we did it. His longest answer, I think, was two syllables. It was just horrible because, and then it took me 10 years to realize this, but, I mean, he didn't, he didn't have to do that. He didn't need to do that. I didn't do him any good that day. His problem that day was he had a popped-up street bike, and he was supposed to go out and try to beat the factory Harley-Davidson full-on prototype dirt track racers, and it was mission impossible. So, you know, he, he, it, 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 I didn't appreciate until much later that why he was the way he was that day. You fast forward, you said 40 years. I suppose it might have been 40 years now that I think about it. And now he's past three-time champion, retired, uh, and owns a team in the Grand Prix series, and it's falling apart because they don't have a good engine and it's a multitude of problems. And so I interviewed him again on Wind Tunnel, Mm-hmm. And he was not surly, but he was less than cooperative. Uh, he didn't want to do it. And, and I should have just waved it off, but I didn't. And, uh, but it, it, there was a lot of insight in it if you got, if you got past the, you know, the fact that he just obviously wasn't interested in doing the interview and was very concerned about the welfare of his team. The producer of the show, after it was over, said, quote, you would think that Kenny Roberts would be appreciative of the opportunity to be on, to come on our show and talk about his team. And I, I, did, I, I, I said to him, I, I don't know how to explain Kenny Roberts to somebody like you who hasn't seen him evolve over the years. I guarantee we could do this interview again a week from now, and he'd be Prince Charming, but it's, that's just not the way he works. So, yeah, Kenny was kind of a beginning point and end point in some regards um, of, of my, my career, but definitely maybe the all-time great in terms of motorcycle racing because of the combination of, of dirt and pavement on which he won and his pioneering role in uh, leading America into Grand Prix racing overseas. Oh, yeah. Now, I've only met this, this person one time, and it was, it was literally uh, in Nashville at the IndyCar race, and we, net, we, we literally ran into each other. I was holding the door open for Danica Patrick and at the media center, and he blew through, and, and we wound up sandwiching the poor girl uh, as, as he busted through to do what he, he needed to do, and that would be Robin Miller. <laughs> Tell us a little, a little bit of your history with Robin. He, he, you know, he was on your show a lot. He was a great guy, great personality, and uh, we miss him. 
Well, I didn't really get to know Robin until the wind tunnel days because I never. I, people are people are stunned at this statement. I've never been to the Indy 500. Um, you know, I covered motor 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 racing for a living for 47 years or something like that. Never been to the Indy 500 because I was never assigned to the Indy 500. I was always working for a different network. It was ABC, uh, you know, after the wide world of sports thing that we already talked about. I didn't work for ABC again, I don't think ever. Um, so I just didn't have any reason to be there. But ESPN covered... Um, starting in what was it '96, the Indy Racing League um, covered all of practice and the f- second weekend of qualifying. You know, it, it's 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 common now. It's 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 universally accepted that every lap of practice and qualifying should be on television for every important race there is. Well, that was not the case in 1996. No, this was a brand new thing. And the motor, uh, the uh, Indy Racing League was a brand new deal, and they didn't have any money, they didn't have any tires, they didn't have any fuel. We did more than one hour-long show in which a car never turned a wheel on the on the racetrack. So that that's my Indy experience was '96. It was great because I had Tom Sneva for an analyst. He talked about a great storyteller, and I got to know Robin Miller. And appreciated Miller for all the reasons that everybody appreciates him. What a crazy, sort of out of joint. Uh, My my vocabulary is failing me. I didn't have Robin Miller notes prepared, but (laughs) irascible. That's that's the word I was looking for. Um, And just you know, tell it like it is. And if you don't like it, that's tough. So when Wind Tunnel came along, Miller was an obvious fit. and by then, you know, I had gotten to know him well enough that, that uh, you know, I, I, it, it's frustrating with Robin because, you know, as much as his being off the wall is part of his appeal, uh, was part of his appeal, it, it's, it's also difficult to channel that when you're in an environment that requires that every four to four and a half minutes, you get to commercial, uh, and you, you and you try to keep the the you know you, you try to have a storyline that you're advancing at every point in the show. And again, Robin is in contrast to just bouncing off the walls and you know kind of stream of consciousness stuff. But it was all so good, so entertaining, and backed up by such a wealth of knowledge, personal, first person. Uh, accounts of great episodes that happened 40 years ago with with great drivers. I mean, he had such a such a, a head full of history that you know you couldn't go wrong. But it was frustrating because you couldn't plan. And I'm kind of a planner. It's back to the be prepared thing with Squire. You know, I, I wanted to try to keep things on a track, not to reduce the spontaneity but to make sure that the spontaneity was advancing the story and robin didn't get that robin just was robin um bless his heart somebody somebody tweeted that i don't remember how they phrased it but something to the effect that uh that robin would have been on wind tunnel on sunday night celebrating the victory by 
Sticky Renhouse. <laughs> Sticky Renhouse as opposed to Ricky Stenhouse. Yeah. Um, just Robin being Robin. Yeah, he was a character. And, and he, was, he was very much a, a champion of Danica's cause, which, uh, you know, makes sense. It, it was in Robin's interest to see her do well and to see IndyCar do well. But then when she went to NASCAR, of course, he, he went, she went to the dark side and... and uh, <laughs> He didn't have much use for much of anything NASCAR, yeah. so uh, you know he had his biases, but he didn't try to hide them. He was he was very open about it. Now, Bud introduced you as a former AMA Hall of Famer. How did that story play out? Boy, that's really inside baseball. Unless you unless you care about motorcycle racing. It, 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 long story short, uh, actually, a, a guy that was very important in Kenny Roberts career um god i don't know this the whole thing is just such a bad memory they um hmm i'm trying to think of a graceful way to put this they basically screwed this guy out of out of they announced that they were going to induct him he had had a previous run-in with a guy who was an attorney and has a lot of money and a bunch of old, a bunch of antique motorcycles, mm-hmm. and so that guy went public with the claim that uh, that uh, the gentleman in question had stolen motorcycle parts from him, and so they withdrew his nomination for the, the Hall of Fame. Hello? And it, it made me crazy because, A, it wasn't true, uh, and, and, B, and Nobby Clark's the guy's name, and he, he's, he's too nice a guy to be dragged through the mud like this. He was battling cancer at the time, and I just thought it was totally inappropriate, and so I quit. I, I publicly announced that I was resigning from the, from the Hall of Fame because I thought their selection process was, was laughable and that if Nobby Clark didn't deserve a place in the Hall of Fame, I sure as hell shouldn't be in there. So I tried to, I tried to resign, but they won't take my picture down off their website. So if I had more time and money and energy, I'd probably sue them, but it's not worth it. Understood, understood. Now let's get back to Sticky Renhouse for a minute. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you watch the Daytona 500? I did. Um, I record it. I don't. I, I understand. Don't, yeah. I don't watch it live because I, you know, like apparently a great many in the audience, I can't tolerate that many commercials. So uh, plus, again, I mean, and I learned this the first. I think it was the first MRN race I worked. Again, Union Ball, Union seventy six Ball, Turn Four, Daytona, security guard down there, and. I got to my position way early, so I'm, and then there's nobody down there. It's already closed off. So he and I are just kind of shooting the breeze. And and uh, when he found out it was my first NASCAR race, he said, "Well, I'll tell you the key to watching NASCAR." I said, "What's that?" And he says, "Just be around for the last ten laps, because that's all that matters." Especially when they're coming from you, I consider that you know expertise. But it's it's true. Of the, I mean. I was there the day Bobby Allison's had the flat and turned side turn you know turned backwards and went airborne at Talladega and took mm-hmm. down the catch fans. I fully understand that the most frightening thing in racing is the possibility of another Le Mans 
55 when, you know, a bunch of people get hurt or killed because of a car goes in the grandstand. I get that. And I don't, and, and I understand that somewhere around 200 miles an hour is the threshold for the cars to go airborne. So you have to keep them below that speed. There's, there's no other solution that I know of. I'm not an engineer. But the path that NASCAR has chosen to slow the cars down, reduce the horsepower, logical, also produces the kind of racing that we see every time you go to Talladega or Daytona, which is they start out with good intentions. Nobody wrecks anybody for the first three, four hundred miles. Um, and then, you know, as the, as the pressure intensifies at the end of the race, they start running into each other. And when you run into each other in a pack like that, you can't help but take out 15 cars at a whack. And it's just dumb racing, in my opinion. I fully understand and appreciate and apologize in advance to all those people who love it and think it's great. I know that I'm the minority. Um, it, it was, whenever there was a, you know, whenever there was a plate race back then, they don't use plates anymore, obviously, but, um, you know, whenever there was a plate race, we knew on wind tunnel that that was going to be the primary topic of conversation. And it's obvious to me that an awful lot of people in that sellout crowd on Sunday think that's just fine, think it's exciting and dramatic and all those other things. I think it's a waste of race cars and not a good way to determine the best guy on that particular day and that particular racetrack. No, not especially. You know, not here, full full props to Sticky for winning the race. <laughs> um, you know, to anybody who wins the race. But did you happen to see the Kyle Busch interview when they asked him about the strategy that he had planned on the last restart? He was, you know, they 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 split. They didn't they didn't stay nose to tail, right. and uh, you know it didn't work out. And he ended up getting wrecked. And he, at, the, at the end of it, he said, uh, I don't even know who won. Who won? And somebody said Stenhouse. And he kind of rolled his eyes as if to say, oh, well, there you go. Um, because I don't think much of anybody would have picked Ricky Stenhouse to win the race. I mean, he wasn't high on the odds list. But it's the nature of that kind of racing that whoever happens to be in the right spot at the right time when half the field behind him wrecked, gets to win. Ricky's won twice at Daytona and once at Talladega, and I think that's what Kyle was reacting to. You know, he's he's not a guy who's going to go out and, and drive past everybody and win the race, but if he stayed up front or near the front all day and was in the right place at the right time and won the race. Um, it's just, to me, it's nothing taking nothing away from, from Sticky. It's just not what the great American race should be. I would much rather, as I said earlier, see two guys battle it out the way Richard and, and David did in, in 76 than see a whole bunch of guys plow into each other and tear up their cars. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the way it is anymore, everybody trying to be so politically correct about these things, I, I don't think you should, on the biggest race of the year, I don't think you should uh, be, be ending it under caution. Now, there, I'm sure there were multiple reasons for that, but I'm thinking, really? You know, if I paid my, if I paid my money and, and drove to Daytona to watch a race and they ended under caution, I don't care who wins, who, but under caution, yeah. really? You know? Well, know. that, you know, that was a great debate back when they went to the, to the green-white checker, yeah. you know, because it wasn't traditional NASCAR. But I think if you look at the history in the interim, 
and you determine that we will have a green flag finish, you might not have a finish because you might never get a car across the finish line under green. Right. They, you know, they just they're going to wreck at the end. I mean, there's you know, there's no avoiding it. It happens every race, and and I remember that Talladega race. I I don't remember the year, but. Helton had told them that they were gonna that NASCAR was gonna officiate bump drafting, mm-hmm. no bump drafting in the corners, and the drivers didn't like that very much. They didn't think that the tower should be determining how they race, and so I'm I'm absolutely convinced that it was a just a, a subtle statement of of who's really in charge here. About the third or fourth pit stop, they went out after they being the entire field of cars went out after the pit stop and ran single file through a whole tank of fuel. Nobody touched anybody. Nobody tried to pass. Nobody made a move. Nobody did anything, as if to say, "Is this what you want?" And then they all came in and got fuel, and then went back out and all wrecked and got back to Talladega, as we know and love it. <laughs> yeah. But I think there was a subtle statement there to NASCAR that you know you can't. There's a limit to how much you can try to restrict how we do this. And if you're going to put us in these cars and put us in this pack racing situation, where the only way to go fast is to bump draft with a with a partner, that's what you're going to get. And so, there were, you know, we didn't hear very much about bump drafting in the corners after that. Mm-hmm. But we still had all the things that we've come to, I've come to hate, and everybody else has come to love about restricted racing and pack racing or whatever you want to call it. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, multi-car wrecks. And now, now we're down to a spec car. What's, uh, what's, the, uh, what's next for Dave Despain? I'm pretty happy. Just cruising along here. I, uh, I, I stay up on motorcycle racing pretty well. I love the internet because um, it, you know, it lets you do that. It's it's just so remarkable to think back to when I was a fan of Grand National Dirt Track motorcycle racing. It took a week to find out who won, and I was a pretty smart kid. So I, uh, like, if they if they raced at San Jose, I would get I would call information which you could do back then, and ask for the phone number for the San Jose newspaper, not knowing what the newspaper's name was, but they would, they would find it and they would give me the number. Uh, and then I would call the track and tell them that I was from... I, I, found, I, would, I would call the newspaper and find out who would have been covering the motorcycle race that day? Oh, we didn't know there was a motorcycle race. Oh, yeah, well, have yeah, have somebody call us, and give us the results. We'd love, we'll, we'll put we'll put it on if it's local. We just didn't know about it. Okay, great. So then I'd call the track and tell them that I was from the San Jose Mercury News. I was in the sports department and I wanted to know who won the big motorcycle race. And there'd be a long pause because whoever yeah. I was talking to was probably <laughs> a security guard or something. Yeah. And they would. Pretty soon, a voice would come on the line, hello, who is this? Yep. San Jose Mercury News. Yeah, okay, can I help you? Yeah, I want to know who won the race today. Uh, Bart Markle. 
okay, well, wait a minute. I need more than that. Give me the whole finish order. And they give me, there was, I think, 17 bikes in the feature at that time. They'd give me all 17 names. Okay, thank you very much. And I'd hang up and tell all my buddies that I knew. I'd call them on the phone and say, okay, Mark will won today at San Jose. Wow, how do you know that? Cycle News won't be here till next Thursday. <laughs> yeah, well. And now you compare that to the Internet where you can find out the results of every race, you know, the, down to the tiniest little local short track. So I, I, I spend a lot of time uh, you know, surfing the net. Well, good for you. We, we surely, surely appreciate your time. Uh, to, uh, it's fun. It's, it's, it's nice reliving all those. Uh, all those. As 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 Daryl Walter said, I'm just glad I had an era. <laughs> well, that's true too. And and you know, we don't want we don't want this stuff to all get stuck in a box, like you said, and and you know, not not get out to people because the history is important. Uh, you know, you, you've got to remember yeah. where you're from to get to where you're going. I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Very well said. Yeah, it's it's it, it, when we when we stop learning from experience, then we're in we're in a lot of trouble. But overall, I think racing has done a pretty good job of late, um, surviving the the '08 crash. It's hard to believe it's 25 years, but right. you know that could have put us all out of business. And and it, as it turned out. We we seem to be relatively healthy, and on the television side, streaming is just a you know, it's just a godsend. It's a it's it's changed the the uh, the economics of the sport apparently pretty dramatically. If you take the uh, uh, I've lost the name Kyle Larson and and Brad Sweet's uh, style, uh, sprint car series High Limit. Yeah, right. uh, if you take that you know as an example of of streaming creating a revenue source that enables you know television and bigger purses and all the rest of that i mean that's that's a, that's a pretty remarkable development and i think it's fairly recent it's happened pretty quickly well, it's like racing when you're not racing you know e-racing and and the the money that's involved with that that's that's crazy same, yeah, same, same, same thing. Good example. It doesn't come to mind as quickly because I'm not very good at it, so I don't do it very often. <laughs> no. But, but uh, yeah, it's uh, you know the, it, it, the the digital world for the most part, I think, is a uh, a help, a tool that the racing is making good use of. Well, let's uh, let's do this again in the future and. Uh, you can bring us up to speed with whatever's going on with Dave Despain. We just appreciate your time here on Bud's Garage Overdrive. If anything exciting happens, I'll let you know. <laughs> Other than that, full speed ahead. Well, Tim, LS engines run the gamut from, you know, just a stock truck right. engine mm-hmm. to the high-performance engines that they have before they went into the LT engines. But if you've got an LS engine, you've gotten crazy with it. And uh, you put a aftermarket charger on it, say a Whipple charger, Edelbrock, uh, Magnuson TVS, mm-hmm. and you want to get serious horsepower out, power out of it. How do you get horsepower out of a supercharger? Well, you raise the boost. Exactly. Well, some of these guys are really pushing the envelope, and Concept One Pulley Systems has come out with a 10-rib heartbeat supercharger, alternator AC, and power steering for your LS engine. Really? You need that 10 rib belt so you're not throwing belts. Okay. Because 15 pounds boost is a lot. That's a lot. It's enough to get you past the 1,000 horsepower threshold and guys are reaching further than that. Okay. That's a great system 
And again, you can you can get into your power steering pump needs, what you, what you need on your particular build, mm-hmm. what you need as far as alternator, uh, AC, and it's a nice clean system. It uses one big ten rib belt, and uh, I see two on here. I'm sorry, one big ten ten rib belt, and then a little smaller little, belt. Looks yeah. like an eight rib belt. It's a great system. Call them out. Yeah, it's combined with an eight rib system and a ten pound system. Okay. Uh, as far as rib belts go. Mm-hmm. So check it them out. Yeah. Takes the guesswork out. It absolutely does. It comes with all the brackets, all the pulleys, all the hardware, and it fits so dang good. Yeah. I've used so many of these. They just fit great. I've, I've used them my, myself, and then I've helped guys install them at other shops and stuff, and they just work so great. Uh, give Concept One a check out at conceptone.com, and you can give them a call in coming Georgia. And actually talk to Kevin or Randy, mm-hmm. who build these systems, design them, build them, and are at the CNC machines all day long. Right. So they can do what you need done. Concept one, pulley system. Perfect reaction time. Dave Despain, that was a mouthful, wasn't it? Oh, man. Uh, this guy has had a life full of experiences. And, and you know, it was, it was great. He just could roll with it, went from one thing to another. And, right. uh, you know coordinated it for us because it was a lot to keep up with oh yeah it was he's done a great job and he's kept those of us that are into the motorsports thing and i I know um you know we're in it at at different the depths let's put it that way you know he he walked us through it Mm -hmm. he 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 says he fell into it and maybe you do fall into things but you've got to be present yeah you know, so you've got to have a dream and you've got to go after it. He realized, he, you know, he wasn't going to be a competitive motorcycle racer, even though that was his love. He also realized that at some point in time, and not everybody's as interested in motorcycles as he is. Right. And there is another audience out there. And, and you know, for him, it happened to be NASCAR. And so he did a lot of that with a lot of folks who are interested in that. And that's that's the irony of it. He wasn't particularly interested in the NASCAR stuff. No. But when you take your passion and you apply it to the the job at hand, mm-hmm. you make it work. Absolutely. And so he followed his passion. And he still had his motorcycles on the side. Yeah. And he was still involved. I think he was a little bit taken back by your question about the uh, Motorcycle Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Um, and so we, we, we might have sprung that on him. I, I apologize if, if we did, Dave. But uh, that, is, that was part of your history. And what I got out of that was the same as I got, of our, got out of Bob Varsha. Mm-hmm. He had some dealings with networks that he, he just felt it wasn't what they wanted him to do wasn't the right direction. Right. And he, he had his integrity. And you with the American, uh, American Motorcycle Association, um, Dave with the American Motorcycle Association, had that same type of thing going on. Mm. You know, he saw something that was going on that just, just wasn't right for a person that had been involved with motorcycles and then was accused of a crime that he was never committed of and, mm-hmm. and all that mm-hmm. and the, the politics. Exactly. And there are politics in all of it. Whether it's, you know, your business, my business, whatever it is, there are politics always. And he called them out. And then a lot of other motorcyclists that were in the Hall of Fame called them out. And so the the integrity was what I was, what we were getting after. It wasn't, you know, that it was the biggest story on the planet. Uh, Right. But, you know, he actually set back his medal and everything. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's huge. That's a a big deal. Right, right. And so... When I was, 
when I had read that and done a little research on it, I was thinking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and this Hall of Fame and that Hall of Fame. And, you know, like everybody eventually gets into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, it didn't used to be that way. No, it didn't. Uh, but politics has kind of changed that. And, um, you know, Dave getting into the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster was huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, so hats off to him for taking a stand. You got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. You got that That's right. That's your country western song. But I want to get back to Dave uh, in the future because he also took a cross-country motorcycle ride mm-hmm. and had some great stories that he used to feature on Wind Tunnel. So we're going to have a, a revisit time with Dave, and uh, I just want to give a shout-out to him and, and thank him for coming in and, and doing the program. He's a very us. exciting and interesting character. Thanks, Dave. Sure was. If you live in the world of custom cars, muscle car restoration, have a hot rod shop, whatever it might be, you need to get to know the folks at Year One. Tim and I know them very well, don't oh, we? Oh, yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. 14 Cars. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But they have got a, a plethora of products for you. And, and let me run down their email blast. They have got ZDD Plus oil supplement. It's four ounce and it's essential for the older engines that have flat tappet cams. Mm-hmm. Roller cams are fine with, you know, good synthetic oil and up. Flat tappet cams need the stuff that's been taken out of oil in order to break them in and not have them break down on you. Okay. So that's, that's available from them from year one. They have also got 350 crate engines. Now, these are an engine, uh, what we would call a long block, which is everything but the ancillary stuff that you need. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Forty-six ninety-nine for a small block Chevy, or thirty-nine ninety-five for another version of the same engine. Wow! One looks like it has cast iron heads, and one looks like it has aluminum heads. Okay, well, but that's a bargain. That is, uh, you, uh, you can't build it. For you that. can't build you it. You just right. cannot exactly. build it for that. It's uh, they're made by Power Crate Engines, uh, and if you're a Mopar Mopar guy, mm-hmm. it's either Mopar or No Car for yep. you. They now have wheel tubs that you can put in 70 to 74 e-body and they are three inches wider than your regular wheel tubs mm-hmm. so you can put the big meats under the car oh yeah get it to hook that and so much more at year one the classic car restoration experts and they are in cornelia georgia check them out at year one.com well tim that's pretty much a wrap time for the thank yous i want to thank lanier technical college year one classic car muscle car restoration folks and concept one pulley systems and the folks here at jacobs media including our overworked producer bill wilson bill tell us a little about a bit about your trivia stuff that you uh, your other gig that you have that doesn't drive you quite as crazy <laughs> you'd be surprised <laughs> uh, my other gig i host trivia in the local north georgia area monday through thursday nights mondays are the, we're at the locos in gainesville tuesdays at the wild wing in dawsonville Wednesday's Riverside Tavern in Cleveland, and Thursday's The Wild Wing in Cumming. But wherever you're listening to us across the country, there's a location near you where DJ Trivia can be played and enjoyed. Just check out the website, djtrivia.com. So you can play it online? No. Oh, but you can listen but to it. But you can it. find a location okay. online. And listen you to you play. making fun of people. You no. Know. No. You've got to be in, you gotta <laughs> be in North Georgia for that. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Hey, we have other hosts. We will check it out. I'm not that overworked. <laughs> <laughs> Well, March is uh, Women's History Month, and in honor of that, our guest next week is going to be automotive expert Lauren Fix. Oh, she wow. is she is she's a real deal. She is she's a firecracker. A, she is a racer. 
She has uh, been a driver. Mm-hmm. You know, she's on YouTube. She's on TV. She's on all the big national shows. And, and she'll talk to guys like us. Yeah. You believe that? I, Grew up in western New York. I, I didn't know her when I was growing up there. But uh, mm-hmm. gotten to know her now. And she's a great friend to the show and to the uh, podcast. And let's not forget, while I'm mentioning the show, Bud's Garage, the radio show on WDUN. It features local guests and their expertise. So if you've got a local garage in the in your vicinity or you've got a, a dealership or whatever, we'd introduce a lot of topics that would apply to your situation no matter where you are in the country. You know, take it to the folks you know in your town and say, hey, I listen to these cornballs on, on a podcast, and they, they suggested maybe this. Yeah. And uh, see if they don't throw you out. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to keep between the ditches shiny side up and uh, thanks for listening to Bud Scratch Overdrive we'll be back next week